0: From the Bhagavad Gita. When a man gives up all desires that emerge from the mind and rests contented in the self by the self, he is called a man of firm wisdom. He whose mind is untroubled by any misfortune, whose craving for pleasures has disappeared, who is free from greed, fear, anger, who is unattached to all things, who neither grieves nor rejoices if good or if bad things happen, that man is a man of firm wisdom. Having drawn back all his senses from the objects of sense as a tortoise draws back into its shell, that man is a man of firm wisdom. Sense objects fade for the abstinent, yet the craving for them continues. But even the craving vanishes for someone who has seen the truth. At first, although he continually tries to subdue them, the turbulent senses tear at his mind and violently carry it away. Restraining the senses, disciplined, He should focus his whole mind on me. When the senses are in his control, that man is a man of firm wisdom. If a man keeps dwelling on sense objects, attachment to them arises. From attachment, desires flare up. From desire, anger is born. From anger, Confusion follows. From confusion, weakness of memory. Weak memory, weak understanding. Weak understanding, ruin. But the man who is self-controlled, who meets the objects of the senses with neither craving or aversion, will attain serenity at last. In serenity... All his sorrows disappear at once forever. When his heart has become serene, his understanding is steadfast. Thank you, Willie.
1: this is the third of a small series that we've had over the past few weeks. Uh, We began with looking at at the idea of naming, when we we name things and the effect that has. And we went on after that last week of looking at the idea of, of being human and becoming human. And the idea really that in becoming human, it's our spirit that is there first. We're fundamentally spiritual beings trying to be human. And the idea of becoming human is the spirit expressing itself through our humanity. And today we're going to talk about self-determination. And when we talk about self-determination, at first, the thing that generally comes to mind is the process by which a person controls his or her own life. You know, we, we, we like to think about ourselves being in control, self-determination is about that. And in nation-state terms, Uh, in terms of nation states, self-determination is the process by which a country determines its statehood and forms its own allegiances and government. So self-determination is really about being in control and everything that goes with negotiating our way through life. You know, we want our kids to be self-determined, you know, to get on in the world and make their way. Whenever, you know, Samuel says, Dad, what should I be? I always say, a doctor. Because it's always reliable, but, you know, we want our children to get on, to get their exams and have a happy and successful life. You know, it's only natural. However, Richard Raw, who is speaking here in October, October the 9th, says that over the age of 35, none of us has anything to learn from success. Over the age of 35, no one, none none of us have got anything to learn from success. In asserting this, he makes a distinction between what he would call the first half of life and the second half of life. He says that there are two major tasks in the human spiritual journey. The task of the first half of life is to create a proper container for one's life and answer some of the questions like, who am I? what makes me significant, how can I support myself, who will go with me. That's the first half of life. The second half of life is really about finding the contents that this container was meant to hold and deliver. So the first half of life is creating the container, understanding who we are and what we're doing. And the second half of life is to discover the contents that we're meant to deliver. In other words, the container is for the sake of the contents. And he goes on to say that in the first half of life, success, security, and containment are almost the only questions. They're the early stages of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We all want and need various certitudes, constants, insurance policies for every stage of our lives. But we have to be careful, otherwise those Ideas completely take over and become the only task, and that keeps us from further growth. You know thus, one of the most common one-liners in the Bible is do not be afraid." If we don't move beyond our early motivations of personal security, of reproduction, of survival, the lizard brain, which we were talking about last week, that survival brain, we will never proceed beyond the lower stages of human and spiritual development. You've got to get beyond that. And the very unfortunate result of this preoccupation with order and control and safety, pleasure and certitude is a high of people never really get beyond that. They're always about building the container and never about what the content of that container is in their own lives. And human life must be about more than just building boundaries Protecting identities, creating tribes, and teaching control. Jesus said, you know, why do you ask, what am I to eat? What am I to wear? And he says, is life not more important than food? Is not life much more important than clothing? What will it profit you if you gain the whole world and lose your very soul? And this idea of the contents and the container is about creating something that your soul can fill. And what we're talking about today in self-determination is really about that second half of life. And this is where our life is determined, not by our own control, but by giving up that control to the greater self that we were talking about last week. And we talked about last week about, you know, that we are spiritual beings trying to be human. How do you do that? How how do you make that, that come about? The fact that we are spiritual beings and our task is to express ourselves spiritually is in Richard Raw's terms, you know, the actual container and the contents. You know, building the first half of life, the container and the contents is our souls. And that entry into the second half of life, you know, it's not necessarily about age. There are many of us who, you know, simply never enter the second half of life. You know, the idea, particularly with us men, of being constant adolescents all the way through our lives. You know? and, and we're still the same. You know, we say, I'm still not the body of a 20-year-old in here. But most likely, it's also the mind of a 20-year-old. You know? <laughs> I mean, you know, we never get beyond it. Uh, and we're preoccupied with our own succession rights right up to death. And certainly, there are those who are quite young, who have entered that second half of life through the nature of their experience, maybe through a traumatic loss or other circumstances that enable them to see something of the truth of the nature of life and that it is more than just building the container. Jesus describes the moment of change as being born from above. He says unless uh, someone is born from above or born again, born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And it is this metanoia moment that propels us into a new way of looking at the world, that change one where we acknowledge that we're not in control and we give up control to a greater self, the great spirit that gives us all life. Well, I think in order to do that, in order to do this thing, enter into second half of our life, we have to, to acknowledge two things. The first thing we have to acknowledge is the fact there is a greater self. There's no point in giving up to a greater self if there isn't one there in the first place. You've really got to acknowledge the fact that a greater self does exist, and that life would be more meaningful if we gave up to it. That's the first bit. And the second thing we have to acknowledge, you know, or or ask, the question we have to ask is, is it possible to give up to that greater self? Because, you know, we spend a lot of time trying to do it, but we don't always end up doing it. So is there a greater self, and is it possible? So that first assertion, if there is a greater self to give up to, and that by giving up to that greater self, it would give our lives more meaning. And that, in a sense, I think, is why we're all here. You know, we're all here because we sense there is something above and beyond that which we see and feel. But the key thing is to know that that great spirit is all around us as in, and is, in fact, organizing all life as we know it. And that, that spirit is in control. And that is, that's the first tenet. It's within us. It is without us. It is the very electricity that links everything together in the impulses of our brain that allows us to see and hear and feel and touch and taste and think. That is it, all of it. We are like fish living in the ocean of the spirit. It's all around us and all within us. And that's the nature of the spirituality that we explore here and we explore it because i think we've had a glimpse of it or we've heard of it and we wish to get a more of a glimpse of it there is a sense of that here and we want to be within a community that will help us sense it more and in fact i think you know i always think our purpose in life you know if you want to know what your purpose in life is i think our purpose in life is to cooperate with that spirit to work out what we need to do and then do it a process of cooperation, to float in that ocean and be guided as to how we're supposed to move. Because we only have the perspective of our senses. We can only see as far as we can see and hear and touch and feel and smell. And those really are the limits of our horizons. But the ocean has no horizons. From our perspective, it is endless. And so is its wisdom and so is its ability to nourish. I think we're like plankton, floating in the ocean of the spirit. And so it makes sense, really, to give up control and to go with it. And if you don't think you're like plankton, just think, think of your size. I mean, most of you are between four foot six and above, you know, maybe up to six foot six, something like that. That's, that's the average height range that we have. Now, the universe is 93 billion light years in diameter. That's the size of the universe. And remember, a light year is the distance of beam that light travels in one year. So you can imagine how tiny we are compared to the huge vastness of the universe. We are plankton. So given that we're plankton, You know, how do we give up control? If we do acknowledge the fact that there is that spirit there, that we are in that ocean, you know, how do we give up control to that? You know, most of us spend our lives gripping on for dear life. You know, look at where you are right now. Look at the fears that you're dealing with, the things that you're trying to keep in control so that your life will work the issues you're facing, the fears and the worries, the struggles to get in control. The truth is, is that you are out of control and you'll never be in control. I've said this many times, you're never, you won't be in control. But it doesn't stop our preoccupation in trying. No matter how many times we hear it, that we're not in control, we still go through the motions, which is basically to worry. That is that is the motions of trying to be in control. And you know, we know that worrying is not the solution. You know, even Jesus said, do not worry about your life. What you eat or drink or your body or what you wear is not life more than food and body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store in barns, yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Can you Any of you, by worrying, at a single hour to your life. I mean, it's quite clear. And yet, you know, I worry all the time. And I'm I'm a vicar or I'm a priest, you know. (laughs) I know. If I am, you are. We still do it. Which brings us to that passage from the, the Bhagavad Gita. You know, when man gives up desire, the desire that emerges from the mind and rests, content in the self, by the self, he is called, she is called a man or a woman of wisdom. And this is how the Gita describes how to allow that greater self to determine our lives rather than the small self that is relied on in the first half of life. And you've got to have that. You've got to pass your exams. You've got to rely on that. And this is how it shows us to be born again from above rather than being born from our rational mind with its narrow horizons. And I printed this out, this reading, because I think it's it really does give the picture. And it's said that, you know, a lot of people say, in order for you to be born again or born from above, you've got to have a big flash of enlightenment, some massive insight, a touch of grace, an insult, insight into true being. But this passage in the Bhagavad Gita says, no, you don't need that. You just have to want it. You just have to want to give up control. And then it sets out how to do it, how to enter into the second half of life. He whose mind is untroubled by any misfortune, whose craving for pleasure has disappeared, who is free from greed, fear, and anger, who is unattached to all things, who neither grieves nor rejoices. If good things or bad things happen, that is a man of firm wisdom. And it goes on. And I'm sure you've heard it all before. But the key to this new type of self-determination is involved in letting go of that constant worry and returning to the focus of that ocean, that spirit that's within us. You know, last week I read that poem by Rumi, The House Guest, and it's worth just repeating that. This human being is a house guest. Every morning, a new arrival. We are a guest house. Every morning is a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Rumi says, Welcome and entertain all things that come. Even if there are a crowd of sorrows that enter into your house and violently sweep through your house, emptying all its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at your door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes in because each has been sent as a guide from the beyond. And that Beyond is the greater self, that ocean. It is the process. And actually, if you read this bit in the Bhagavad Gita, how to do it is actually written in reverse. It starts off with what I call the three impossibles. The three impossibles are giving up desires, having an untroubled mind, and then giving up up attachment to all things good and bad. I mean, you know, the moment you say that, you think they're impossible and they are really the three impossibles so it lists what the three impossibles are and then it acknowledges the craving that we have it acknowledges the turbulence of the mind and it advises a focus on the divine arguing not to focus on the senses because of the attachment and anger and confusion and ultimate ruin and then it comes to the key it comes to how to actually do it and it says But the man who is self controlled, who meets the objects of the senses with neither craving nor aversion, will attain serenity at last. In serenity, all sorrows disappear at once, forever. When his heart has become serene, his understanding is steadfast. And that is the place we want to be in. The self control that leads to not craving or aversion, but brings serenity. And so we're left with the key to what it is to give up to the greater self. And quite naturally, it involves control of the smaller self, control of our minds. And that traditionally comes through meditation, through mindfulness, through various practices that we're aware of. But more than anything, it involves self-control in the moment. It involves self-control in the moment. The ability to realize in the moment that worry is futile. And in that moment of worry, to put it to one side and to open up to that greater self. And it's so tempting not to. We just want to go on to the next bit of the worry and the next bit of the insurance policy and the lack of money. And when am I going to lose my house? And what is my wife going to say? And how are the children going to go to college? You just carry on. You have to break it. You have to break it. You have to literally put a stop to that worry. And that is what a mantra is about in meditation. It puts a stop to repeat the word, locks out other thoughts. But in day-to-day life, it involves actually putting a stop to the worry, to consciously say, I'm not going to think in that direction. Instead, I'm going to stop worrying and open up to that greater self. Not to do so is like being a dog tied to a strong pillar with a long leash. And to try and escape, the dog just goes round and round and round, but it never gets anywhere because it's attached to that strong pillar. And so it is with our worries. We just keep on covering the same ground, thoughts, outcomes, feelings, perceptions. We're not freed from them. We're just tied up in knots. We have to cut the leash by not getting bound up in those thoughts, by not following them through, by having the self-control to let them pass, like those ships on the river. Our meditation and our practice informs and helps us, but in reality, it is the decision made in the moment to give up that leads to those three seeming impossibles. If you can do that, you will end up being able to give up those desires, to have an untroubled mind, and to be free from the attachments of all three, all things, good and bad. And those three things are the gateway to true self-determination. So have a look at that passage, if you've got a moment, and just be aware of it. Next time you're in a, in, in a moment of worry, just imagine yourself as a dog on a leash and cut that and just move on to something else.
0: I've finished. <laughs> Help. <laughs>